Welcome to the new episode of the Thriving Lawyers Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Osborne. Uh, Today, I have the distinct privilege of interviewing a person who's come to be a friend through the wonderful world of LinkedIn. Uh, She is a professor at Fordham Law School. She's also a coach for lawyers, and she has a fascinating journey through her whole process of going to law school and figuring out her place in the legal world. It's inspiring and encouraging to me. I'm sure it will be to you as well. Uh, Please join me in welcoming Jordana Confino. Listen to me saying that like we have an audience, like it's going to cheer or something. Maybe I'll have to pipe that in later. Anyway, Jordana, so glad to have you. Oh, well, we can can cheer ourselves. Um, There you go. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I am a huge fan of the podcast. I am an even huger fan of yours um, and just really delighted to get to hang out with you this afternoon. Well, we, we appreciate you making time to be with us here, especially because the, the law school semester is still going on and you have lots going on, I'm sure. Uh, so thanks for making uh, time. Um, and so why don't you just start by telling folks a little bit about kind of your journey. I know a little bit of your story because we've talked, we've gotten to know each other through Institute for Wellbeing and Law type things. But Tell the folks kind of what it was like being Jordana. When did you first know you wanted to go to law school? What was that like? And then what was the experience like? And we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So I went to law school for all of the wrong reasons, um, <laughs> which I think I'm not I'm not unique in that. Basically, the way that I ended up applying to law school was that I had always been kind of, not always, but since, you know, early, early teenage years, early high school, a raging overachiever. And so I was overachieving in college. I did, I majored in psychology in college with a focus in focus on social psychology because I was absolutely passionate about it. But when it came to the end of college and most of my friends were going into either finance or consulting, my, the things that that were interesting to me, so being either a therapist or I'd taken a bunch of teacher prep classes. Okay. I was drawn to that. That just didn't seem shiny enough. Um, So I kind of had this panic and people had always told me I should be a lawyer because I was so meticulous and type A. (laughs) Um, People say type A plus. Um, And so I ended up taking the LSAT. I did pretty well on it. And you were at Yale undergrad, right? I was at Yale undergrad and I had had the good fortune of making some friends at the law school and okay. the law school just sounded like this really cool, interesting place. So I, I applied there as well as some other law schools. I got into Yale and I just went straight through. I, you know, I already had the apartment in New Haven. So I, I stayed <laughs> there and, and went straight into law school. And there was this, at that point, there was this cognitive dissonance for me because I needed to come up with a better story of why I want to go to law school other <laughs> right. than, well, you know, it's prestigious and I don't know what else I want to do. So I had been um, involved in a bunch of um, nonprofit work focused on universal girls' education and universal girls' human rights efforts throughout oh, wow. high school and college. And so part of that focused on anti-sex trafficking. Okay. And so it's it's so interesting. It's like the John Haight research on how our rational mind will come up with reasoning to support our impulses. So here it's like, I have to construct this, you know, reasonable story for why I want to go to law school. So I actually, I discovered 
through a summer internship in college that there is this thing called the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. Yes, with- that was recently passed around that time. I did a little work with that. What what year would that been? Because uh, when I taught <laughs> law school, we had a, a student group that was trying to line up with that and do some stuff uh, to lend some volunteer effort to the human trafficking prevention. Yeah. So I don't remember when it was passed, but the summer that I learned about it was the summer before my senior year. Um, okay. So I guess that was 20. 20- 2011. Um, okay. And so I was like, oh, well, I've been focused on all this anti-sex trafficking work. I'll become a federal prosecutor in an AUSA. That's a super, super prestigious job that lots yeah. of people at Yale Law School want. Like that is my, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to do. So I went into law school basically guns blazing as I had learned very well how to do, which is what's the goal that I want? What is everything that I need to do to get it. And I'm going to do those things. And so and you sure would make enough, a list. You were a meticulous person. So you would have an action plan for oh, those yeah. goals. Oh yeah. So I, I, you know, spent my, my first summer at the U S attorney's office in the unit that focused on anti-sex trafficking. Work. Gosh. I looked around general crimes, which is the entry level unit. I saw that about 70% of the people had spent, had, so all of them had clerked and like 70%, it was crazy, had spent their time at Davis Polk before okay. they went there. So I was Interesting. Like, oh, okay, okay, so I need to go to Davis Polk and I need to clerk. Noted. And so then I went back <laughs> that summer. We had the interviewing going on. I got my job offer for a 2L summer at Davis Polk for semester 2L. That was the year that the plan, quote unquote, died. Um, and Ooh. so judges were hiring even earlier before uh, winter break of my second year of law school, having only one semester of grades from second semester 1L, which is all you get at Yale. Oh, wow. I lined up my two post-grad federal clerkships. Um, Wow. And at that point, I started to panic because I, for the longest time, knew about myself that, first of all, I had pretty intense anxiety and there was nothing that made me more anxious than long, solitary writing projects, like nothing in the world. So much so that I actually wrote both of my major papers second semester of 1L year because the only way that I could make that anxiety go away was to make the paper requirements go away. And here I was signing up for two years of just writing. It's like a researching and writing, right? That's Every time you're done, you just just get another one. That's what a clerkship is. Yeah, it's intense research and writing. Exactly. So here's when I started just freaking out at the beginning of my 12 year. I also, just looking back over this time, I my I had approached law school with the same intensity that I, for my young adult life, had approached, you know, everything that I was trying to achieve by basically sure. giving it 150% at the expense of everything else. I had done that in college as well, but here, as will be no surprise to you, the stakes were higher and it took even that much time, effort, sweat, tears, right. all of the things in order to do it. And so I uh, – oh, my goodness. I will – I basically first gave up, you know, every other aspect of human life um, wow. during during that time in law school. I did make some wonderful friends that I would see like an hour a week for a nice – meal. Um, They all, many of them had other things going on in their lives. For me, that was like the only thing going on in my life except for for studying. And I was just so lonely. I was so tired. I was so stressed. I remember saying to my dad that I felt like a hamster in a pressure cooker. Like that's how much 
stressed Wait, so there was. You, you changed the metaphor. It's not just a hamster on a wheel. It's worse. It's oh, like no. the pressure it's cooker pr- is cooking the hamster. Like, I literally felt, it wasn't just that I was running. I felt like I was going to explode. And that's yeah. anxiety, you know, that yeah. feeling there. And so that, and then the other thing that I remember saying was that I was so lonely that it physically hurt. And that was, wow. was true. Um, And because I just, there was, there was no time for me for anything but work. So all of this was kind of building up. And I'm curious, I have one question real quick, because yeah. it, it, it fascinates me as well, partly for our listeners as well. Would people have said they knew this about you? Like, how did you appear to other people or did you not because you're kind of huddled away studying? I'm wondering what people's perception would have been of Jordana the 2L, Jordana the 2L. So I they definitely, like, I've always been someone who wears my stress on my face. So they would think that I was stressed and I was I was intense. Also, I was called, you know, in in um in college they call it like a section, I don't want to curse on your thing, but a section A hole. You can. In, That's okay. In law school they call it okay, a section asshole. In law school they call it a gunner. I was yeah. I was always, you know, raising my hand, participating honestly, partially because I because I, I public speaking has never been my my great my fear. Writing on the other hand was right. much scarier, but also because silence and uncertainty made me so anxious that I was always just, you know, out there kind of nervously participating. And so they would definitely see that. In terms of the loneliness, I don't think that anyone saw that pain. And I didn't share that with anyone except for my parents who – who I shared that with, um, and well, that's a, that's a hard thing to admit, um, and and it's also a very common thing. It's 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 a theme in some of my journey the last several years, but also I've talked to a lot of different lawyers about that as well, and and especially post pandemic, you know, oh, lawyer yeah. loneliness huge. completely. I mean, lawyer loneliness, but I think that it even goes beyond the pandemic. For for me, it was so deep rooted in my perfectionism and it became this chicken and egg thing um, because I worked so, 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 so hard, which of course, you know, prevented me from nurturing social connection. And I remember even looking at friends in law school who would go out for dinner with their significant other or gasp, go home for the weekend or something, spend that with them. And I would have this feeling of like superiority, like, oh, they're just not as committed. They're not as driven as I am. Like, wow. So, you know, I've got this. And, but because of that, so you, you squeeze out everything. But then it came to the point where in law school, and this is fast forwarding, but I remember once I had my clerkships, once I, I, my grades truly did not matter anymore, I still felt the need to kill myself to, get straight honors. At, uh, that's how the wow. works at Yale because there was nothing else in my life at that point except for my immaculate academic record. And right. So it's I sort felt of like, the life – it sounds like it was the lifeblood. It was what was yeah, really filling you up. Like I, And you're already at – look, you're at a top was, law school. Is, it wasn't filling me up at all. Oh, it wow. Was, like, I, but it was just that I had nothing else because right. I had sacrificed everything to get this thing and so it's like, well, if I don't maintain it, then I literally have nothing. But in the effort of trying to maintain that, you're, of course, you know, closing yourself off right. from cultivating anything else in your life that um, that will do it. And just to, 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 the, to show you the extent to which it wasn't my lifeblood, this was something that I, I happened to be in college. I remember I, there was this neuroscience class that I was in that was really, really, really hard, especially for, for the psych kids. Um, 
And the and I had spent so much time like locked away studying for it. And again, in college, I was super, super, super lonely. I was going through wow. you know challenging social circumstances which, to which I responded by doubling down on my schoolwork because that sure. was the thing that like I as long as I worked hard enough, I could perfect that and make right. that good. And I remember the the teacher announced like, oh yeah, the average on this test was sixty percent, and they gave me the exams back, and I had a hundred. And I went home and I just burst into tears because that didn't make me feel good at all. Like I spent all of this time, you know, focusing on this thing. I get it. And I'm still, I'm still lonely. Um, That was all I wanted. So, so yeah. So so coming back to law school in second year, I was, you know, I was having this panic about the stress of the clerkships. I was still lonely. I was, you know, not well really in many senses of that word, um, and then I spent my my 2L summer at Davis Polk. And I just remember I get there and I wasn't happy. And I saw so many other people that didn't seem happy either. Okay. And no one seemed to care. Um, that's wow. it, it was just kind of accepted that that's what it was. And so that summer, I had basically at the behest of my father – agreed to start seeing a therapist because okay. I was like, all right, if I don't figure out something, I'm just like, this hamster is going to blow up during the yeah. clerkships. I need yeah. something to take the edge off of my anxiety. So I started working with a therapist and it was a therapist whose training was really rooted both in cognitive behavioral therapy, but also mindfulness, um, which oh, is yeah. something that I hadn't done at all up until that point. And the one thing that she did, she did a lot of things, but the one thing that I view as being a really kind of pivotal moment in yeah. all of this for me was that she had me do a very, very basic values discovery exercise. Ooh, okay. Basically, she gave me this list of like 100 values and she said, check off everything that resonates with you and then narrow it down to your top five, the things okay. that are five things that are most important to you. And so I did that. And then she was asking me questions basically being like, all right, now let's reflect on to what extent what you're doing with your time and your life and your energy aligns with those, aligns with those and is Ooh. furthering those. And that was a bit mind boggling for me because there was two things. So first yeah. of all, I so my top values were things like love, connection, learning, oh, no. trust, loyalty. Like these are these were the, all the top. Connection right. was the, connection and love were the top two. Oh my gosh! And meanwhile, I am. You know, the loneliest person on earth spending right. 99% of my time working myself into the ground to become a criminal prosecutor. Right. You know, that like there's no alignment there. Right. It's, um, it's not a job in which love is one of the main characteristics they look right. for. I'm not saying you can't be loving as a prosecutor. Maybe you can, but it's not really, you know, I don't hear achievement or justice in your top five there, which is exactly. what you normally want to see for something like that. Yeah, and so the long-term goal wasn't ma- didn't match up, and the short-term, I was sacrificing all of my values. So that was one thing. But the even kind of more mind-boggling part of it for me was that I had never once in my life stopped to consider what my values were. Right. Like I had never. It, it was. It seemed irrelevant to me. Honestly, right. it was like it didn't matter what I cared about. What mattered was you know doing the prestigious thing, doing yes. the successful thing, looking good to others, pleasing others impressing others and I can relate to that part just for our listeners from a different perspective but for me the achievement and the getting A's and you know being co-valedictorian in high school and all 
it was serving a purpose. It was like, I just bought into that. And it's not that I didn't, you know, like academics. I mean, I did, um, but I bought into all of that because it was sort of my ticket out. I went to school in a small you know, town in South Georgia and I'm like, how do I get out of here? How do I go to a good college? You sort of just buy into that, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And like, this will deliver me. And it does for a while. Uh, and and, and you, can, you don't want to not, you know, getting to go to a good college and good law school. That's yeah. great. But uh, it's amazing that you were able to get that sort of moment of, wait a minute, how did I get here? And is well, it where I want to be? It's so, because, and you're right, it is different because I wasn't trying to go, like there wasn't like, a means, it was never a means to an end for me. It was always just like the next shiny star, the yeah. next shiny star. And then this, like, the scary thing is extrapolating out further because I dealt with that for, you know, even once I stopped practicing law, which was that every time I ever reached the shiny thing, I would then panic because, of course, this is all bound up in imposter syndrome. And it's sure. like, well, how am I now? Everyone expects me to do the next shiny thing. Right. And right. how am I going to do that? Like, how am I going to show them I'm not a, a one hit wonder? Was right. the thing you that like, always it. exactly. Um, it reminds me of what they, uh, there were some famous quotes when Brady won, I guess maybe it's his fourth or fifth Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And he sort of realized, like, and now what? You know, like, got four rings. And now what do I do? Or Deion Sanders kind of came out with some of that. Like I think he may have actually attempted suicide at some point in time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it because of that pressure, because it's isolating. That's the other thing. That kind of success can be sort of isolating because you get in this rare air, and then everybody else is kind of you know gunning for for what they're after as yeah. well. Totally. And so I was. I'm just seeing all of this you know, kind of flash behind before my eyes when I'm in law school. And it was funny because I was one of the youngest, youngest people in my law school class because I went straight through from undergrad, which is super, super rare at Yale. Yeah. I think like 50% of the class was at least three years out. Like 20% were, you know, five plus years out. There was a childcare on – or daycare on on campus. And I had this moment because I just saw the writing on the wall because I had been – so intense my entire life up until that point and so willing to just forsake everything for wow. this, you know, pursuit of perfect um, that I realized was a, a road to nowhere um, except burnout. Um, yeah. And so I had this kind of like, if not now, when moment. Um, if I'm if I'm not going to – at first it started with I was like, okay – in 10 years, once I am the chief of a unit at the U.S. Attorney's Office, then I can transition out and do something that I really want. Right. And then it was like, okay, maybe five years. 10 sounds like a lot. <laughs> or like when I have kids, you know, that'll be a really sure. acceptable time for me to transition out. And right. then I was just like, you know what? I am doing these two clerkships. Two years feels like a really long time. After that, I'm going to do something different. Um, yeah. And I was still in law school when I made that decision. And I remember this because I started telling people and there were a very small number of people who were like, oh, that's really cool. And everyone else was basically <laughs> like, why? You're so not. Someone, someone, someone that I really looked up to and respected at the time even said to me, Jordana, is this a guy problem? Are you afraid that, you know, men are going to be intimidated by, by a powerful woman? And I was like, no, I just, I just want to be happy. Um, and so that was when it really, when it really started for me, the quest for something different. And honestly, at first, when I was like looking for something different, I wasn't looking for anything in legal education or psychology relating right. to what I'm doing now. I was just looking for what is 
the job that I can find in law that'll have required me to work the least number of hours per day so that I can be happy outside of work. Because I, at that point, honestly, I equated work with unhappiness. Um, work was some, something yeah. that you have to do, not something that you want to do. And so I did a lot of asking because for me, looking at the the, the path I was looking at, which was big law and the right. attorney's office, both of those things, you know, they kind of dominate your life. And so I was right. like, great, I'm not actually going to, you know, enjoy the work itself because it's not aligned with my values. It's not aligned with my strengths. Right. It makes me super anxious. And I'm going to have no time outside of it. So let me find something that's at least containable. And while I was having this existential crisis and talking to every lawyer who I thought, you know, had a, a decent work-life balance, which I'll say in the New York area is very hard to come I was come about by. to say, where, where did you go to find such people? I don't know, Kansas. <laughs> like somewhere else was the was the answer, truly. Um, and, and so I – just fortuitously, I ended up having a conversation with the dean of students at Yale because I had been very involved with student groups, especially during my third year once I relaxed a little bit. Um, and I basically realized that she was effectively the social psychologist or the psychologist for the law school. And she right. had a law degree. And I was like, wow, you know, this is something that I could, could do. Cool. It's Connecting with the thing that interested me before, it's my JD won't be irrelevant. I want to be a dean of students. Um, and so then during my clerkships, I did a lot of volunteering basically in any school counseling office that would take me. And I was fortunate enough to get a job at Columbia Law School um, in student services after my second clerkship. Okay. Um, but it, but I had to, during my second clerkship, I was looking for jobs. And I was looking at that time both at jobs – in law schools and then also in law firm professional development roles, okay. which I viewed as, um, you know, could be a stepping stone for me to get to a law school if if right. I couldn't get one at the time because I wanted to stay in New York at that point. That's and you're talking about a career in terms of professional development that was really just starting to catch. Just even starting catch on and, 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 and even be a thing at that point in time. That's when it, I was I was teaching law school around that time, around 12 to 15. Um, but before that, I was in a mid-sized law firm. We didn't have a professional development person. We had like 40 lawyers, but there was no such thing. And, and I didn't know about much of that at even the larger law firms. It was totally. still kind of people were pioneering oh. that to say there is such a thing. Yeah. And there were there were no jobs. And I remember I was reaching out to people being like, so I'm interested in doing this type of work for you. And they're like, we'll pay you three times that to come as come in as a third year litigation associate. <laughs> and I was like, no, that's, that's not what I want. Um, and so I actually ended up turning down the offer to return to Davis Polk before I had found what I was going to do. Um, which is scary, which is which a little is scary, scary. Yeah. which is scary. And then I, it was, it was, it was a lot scary. Um, but, and also I will say that applying for jobs in higher ed was the most humbling, maybe the most humbling experience I've ever had because I was, I mean, I was a hotshot. I thought in yeah. my mind, I was coming from Yale Law School. I had these two super competitive clerkships. No one cared about that in the higher ed world. They're like, but wow. you don't have a master's in higher ed. Um, oh, and so my I was gosh. applying for jobs that paid in New York at the time $50,000 oh a my year. Goodness. And I just was getting ghosted left and right and left and right and left and right. And thank goodness wow. I actually got ghosted for a lot of jobs that were nowhere near as good of a fit for me as the one that I ultimately ended up getting. At and Columbia real quick before you go there, yeah. I'm curious. So how did you approach the clerkships given that you knew – 
It was going to be very kind of solitary. It was the thing that gave you the most sort of stress and anxiety of like just having to sit there and crank stuff up. What yeah. did, you, did you do anything different to make that <laughs> tolerable? So it's it's really interesting because and I and I'm I'm always telling my students that there are there are so many different stages of my journey of self discovery and self realization and self actualization and self betterment and all yeah. these things and so I had you know I'd come to this epiphany when I was in law school that was enough to to make me kind of. Take start taking steps to change course, but I okay. still all of my deep seated like perfectionism, workaholism, all those things were still there. And so, the one thing that changed before the clerkships was that. So I actually had this magical period. So I got I took the bar in the end of July, and I didn't start my first clerkship until the end of October. Oh, wow. So I had okay. that window. And so when I when I got back from – when I first came to New York after being in New Haven for seven straight years, I went on the dating apps. And I was like, I am the world's loneliest person. <laughs> and there was no one in New Haven. I'm in New York and I just need to find someone. And I knew that bar setting was going to get intense. So like oh, maybe wow. whatever, I came back and I sort of went on a gazillion dates. And so many of them were horrible. Oh, <laughs> no. I, let's just call it a thousand horrible dates. And I went on a first date with Zach, my current husband. Let's say he was date 1001. I still oh remember gosh. it was June 2nd. There's another podcast in there, by the way. I think you could just do a podcast of just <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, your they, journey through that. That would uh, be interesting. It was horrible. <laughs> it was so bad. Um, it was so, so bad. And I, 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 yeah, but in any event, date 1001, I met Zach. And this is June 2nd. It's the day after my birthday, so I remember, which is getting close-ish to the bar. And I thought I, I thought we were never going to go out again at the first few dates. I was like, never going to work. It's never going to work. In any event, mm-hmm. somehow I keep, keep doing it a date a week because that was the most that I would let myself do during the prep for the bar exam. And I ended up really liking him. And then after the bar exam, I knew that I had this window. And I was like, all right. And I, <laughs> I said to myself, not to him at the time. I'm going underground come October because I knew that my the judge that I was clerking for is one of the most intense – judges on the Southern District and that I was not going to see the light of day for a year. Wow. And so I said, I got to make this guy fall in love with me before the end of October (laughs) so that that he can, you know, is fine not seeing me for a year. So Yay for values alignment though. Yay for values alignment that you knew, hey, I I need to do something with this window. Well, I I remember talking about this (laughs) with my therapist actually in this period leading up to it. And I was like, I wish I hadn't – and this was like right before the clerkship. And this is once, you know, I made him fall in love with me. We're doing good. But now I'm going to this clerkship and I was – and I actually had to say like I wish that this relationship didn't exist because now I'm panicking about what to do in my clerkship because mm. normally I would go into the situation and really just say, all right, goodbye world. I'll see you in a year. This right. is going to take every ounce of everything I have. But here for the first time in – Seven, at least seven years, I have something to lose. Ooh. What in the world do I do with this? What does it look like to make room or make space for, for and, another person on yeah. the regular? And what I'll say is I made very little space. Um, I just have the world's most patient and wonderful husband. I made very, <laughs> very little space for him that year, but I, I made just enough to keep him around until- okay. Until afterwards, but I will say that that year, and because I, because of my, because of the way that I, you know, am wired or that I was 
you know, raised to be, even though I knew that I didn't want to pursue law beyond those clerkships, I gave them a hundred and right. You, you, you were not capable of mailing it in. Yeah. Like I remember and a friend, a friend of mine went um, later in life back to seminary and he had been a pretty high achiever during undergrad. And I, I think somebody, but he had gotten married and now he's in school and somebody told him, Hey, you, you might, it's okay if you don't get age, you know, like there's not like people are necessarily judging you, you know, and it's again, not saying do crappy work, but what yeah. if, you know, is it worth, it just raises that question. Is it worth sacrificing the other parts of your life that are important? And now that you have something else that's important, what does that yep. mean? And so what I did honestly was, I mean, I, I gave, I, in those clerkships, I really ended up sacrificing a lot of myself because that was the first time. So my brain had been sending me danger signals for years now. I told you about the anxiety. It was in the clerkships that for the first time, my body started sending out physical flares. What in was that? And what did that look like? Chronic pain, GI issues, ulcers, uh, all sorts of oh. things that like a 25-year-old <laughs> shouldn't, um, shouldn't have. And so those were things that then honestly I ended up having to address because my body was just saying, nope, you are yeah. you're you're pushing us too, too, too hard. And that was a lot that when I so it was during the clerkships, I think it was during the second clerkship. When that all happened, that I my again at my therapist, a lot of my best my best life decisions were <laughs> recommended to me by my therapist, and that was when she introduced me to the concept of self compassion, which I had Ooh. never thought about before, never heard before. I subsequently once 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 I once I survived the clerkships, then that's when I did the positive psych certification. Okay. And I learned a lot more about these things, but she just introduced me to this concept of self compassion, and that was at a point where I was really burnt out and broken down during my second clerkship when a bunch of the physical things right. were rearing their their ugly heads. And I just m tried to react to it in the same – in the way that my brain is always wanting to react to when things aren't going right, just push harder. Yes. Just try harder. And that's what I was doing with myself. Well, part and of what – part of what – real quick for our listeners, yeah. what I, one of the things I relate to about that is it's, it literally feels like it's in the last few years that I have gotten the concept that like the brain is actually consuming energy, okay? If I go and do a workout and I like punch a punching bag or I lift weights or something, I feel it. My muscles tell me you're doing something we haven't been doing. This hurts, you know? I know tiredness from physical because partly because the physical was always harder for me growing up. I, I was not the greatest athlete. I do some stuff now, but, um, but, but thinking and writing and arguing and talking always came so easy and they were my stock in trade, but I never really grasped the concept. Yeah, but those are taking energy too. Your brain is actually spending energy. And I remember when somebody introduced me to the concept, you spend attention. Attention is a finite resource and you might spend it all and then you're out. And I'm like, what? Not, not even just attention, but take all of that energy that you're expending by working and then yeah. put on top of it the fact that you're beating the shit out of yourself mentally the whole yes, time. Yes. You're not working hard enough. You're not doing well enough. Like that, that itself. So it's like there was a one thing, it's like the working yourself to death, but yes. it's also beating yourself to a pulp simultaneously. Yes. And then when you start to stall out, most many, you know, people in this camp, they'll just be trying to beat themselves into submission. And Well, then and if you don't do it to yourself, oftentimes in law, there's going to be somebody else who come along 
and either say, hey, to keep up, you really got to do this or that's not good enough, darn it. You Where's yeah. your A game, you know? And so totally. the internal and external pressure combination, I mean, that hamster's now in like a nuclear reactor. You yeah, know? no, and it does not work. And what my therapist said to me was, she said, Jordana, if you had a racehorse that had physically broken down and could not move from exhaustion, would you just keep whipping it to try to get yeah. it to get up and go faster? And I was like, no. <laughs> And she's Sounds like, cool. okay, then then why why are you doing that to yourself? And I was yeah. like, that's a really interesting question. Um, and so basically, she ultimately persuaded me. Again, so many of the times when I've given these things a shot, it was because nothing else was working and I was desperate. I was like, well, why not? Um, right. To try uh, adopting a self-compassion practice. And that actually was the very earliest entree into – a lot of the stuff that I, I'm now teaching um, to my students and doing doing in my in my coaching. Um, well, tell us a little bit about that. So the first you 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 were you had mentioned trying to get into higher ed, yep. law school, and I, it sounds like you were even in other things besides law specifically. Yeah. Oh but yeah. How did you finally get your way into something where you could pursue kind of teaching and some of the psychology things you love that sort of thing? Totally. So I actually I temped um, at Columbia. The summer, that summer when I was making Zach fall in love with me, I wasn't just making him fall in love with me. I was also temping at Columbia um, because I had, this is something I often, people come to me now for coaching on career transitions and things. And so I had a very methodical approach to, I made a list of 60 people in the city with jobs whose whose jobs interested in me. And I informational interviewed them. And one of them at the time was the clerkship director at Columbia Law School. And she basically offered me to come temp in the Office of Student Services. So I did that. Ultimately got a job in the Office of Student Services after my second clerkship. Okay. What, was, your, what um, was that first job? What were you doing actually? Yeah, so it was the assistant director of academic counseling. And so through that, I did academic advising and student personal counseling, which nice. is it was the personal counseling that I really, really wanted to do. My second year at Columbia, this is kind of ironic, they ended up needing me to serve as the acting clerkship director, which is just funny given <laughs> knowing my whole my whole history. And so that was honestly something that I didn't love because I really wanted to be in student services with the student-facing right. work. Um, I was still there, but I was doing this other work too. Sure. But during my um, during the, the first year at Columbia, so during my clerkships, um, actually earlier than that, during some point, actually, you know, it was during my clerkships, so right after law school, I was Googling how to be happy because obviously what else do you do when you're, when you're <laughs> totally unhappy? You Google it. Sure. And I discovered this thing called positive psychology, which is basically the science of human happiness, human flourishing. Sure. And I became obsessed. And so I was always reading for my spare time all of these positive psychology articles and books and things like that. Um, and I discovered that there was this six-month certification program in positive psychology that was being offered at this place, the New York Open Center okay. in New York City. And it was a weekend intensive pro- program. So you would go for an intensive weekend every month for six months. And then you have in-between and online learning things. Okay. And I did that. My It was the fall semester of my first year at Columbia. And I was the only lawyer in the program and everyone else was, you know, healthcare, teaching, nurses, coaching. um, And my, it blew my mind because basically I was presented with all of this rigorous scientific findings that showed that literally everything that I believed about happiness, well-being, success, 
peak performance, everything was totally wrong. Upside down and backwards. And that <laughs> no one had ever told me these things before. And I was, you know, 99% sure that every lawyer and law student that I'd ever met needed this and yes. didn't, you know, didn't have it. And no right. one was giving it to them. And so as my capstone project for that class, um, for that program, I developed a what I called a positive lawyering syllabus, which is basically a syllabus for an academic course on positive psychology. Oh, there. that's wonderful. And that at that point became my dream. I was like, I want to develop and I want to teach this course. And so at that point, you know, I just stowed that away. It was there as like a sort of a pipe dream. Um, but then fast forward a couple of years and I had gotten super involved with different committees at the city bar and the wife of the chair of one of the committees I was on happened to work. She was a dean at Fordham Law School. Okay. And through committee networking events, she knew that I was super passionate about lawyer well-being and yeah. positive psychology for law students. And so we connected a few years later and she said, listen, Fordham just came out with this new strategic plan and – they want to create a whole office focused on student professional identity formation, including well-being. They want someone to come help build out that program. Yes. You should talk to my boss. And so I did, and I learned more about what they wanted to do. I learned that they would be supportive of me developing and teaching classes, and it just seemed like a tremendous opportunity. Also, the year before that, I had worked with the um, – so just around this time that it was it was perfect timing because this is all in like 20 it was 2019 then I went over to Fordham the year okay. two two years before that the ABA task force on lawyer well-being had issued its groundbreaking yes report yes with a whole bunch of recommendations for employers law schools all the same right I at that point was the member of the ABA collapse law school assistance committee and what yes. we did was that committee did a nationwide survey of law schools on what were they doing to basically heed the task force's recommendations for right, law schools? Right. In other words, the, the ABA task force had come out with, and it was very comprehensive with all these recommendations at every phase. They weren't just saying individual lawyers do this. They were saying law firms do this, legal education, continuing legal education. I was in CLE, still am at that time. And we were devouring this going, okay, this feels great. This is like a mandate for what Michael and I had been doing with real time for a long time. Yep. And so you're measuring and going, okay, Here's what ABA wants to see. Who's doing anything that's anywhere close? And what did you find in looking at that? And so I found that that some schools, there were a handful of schools that were doing really, really innovative, cool stuff, often in like different buckets. Like some class, some schools were had really interesting courses. Other schools had really interesting um, orientation programs. Others sure. had really great resources. So there was all of these different recommendations and different schools were doing cool things. Um, and then a lot of schools were doing like, you know, one or two things. And so basically what I was charged with doing was going through all of this data and one, first writing up, you know, what percentage of schools are doing these different things, but then yes. also doing a deeper dive, doing interviews with people at all of the schools that were really leading the charge in these and areas to, to identify. And, yeah. How they yeah, get like, to those particular methods and all. Totally. And like shining light on best practices. So I wrote this super lengthy article. It was published in the Journal of Legal Education. It was basically like, here's and all it's of a the- great article, by the way. I have read it and it is actually fantastic because there's almost nowhere else that does this. You would think 
there would be some kind of comprehensive clearinghouse or a way of looking at this stuff and measuring it, but there's really not other than yeah. this, this real study that you guys did. Well, I'll say that, and it was super valuable for me too, because here I am coming into this new job at a school where they're basically like develop this program from the ground up. And I had just written this lengthy article on all of the best practices. So I had so many ideas and I found myself in this unicorn of a school that was so excited and so committed to this work and so supportive of, you know, me helping me do it and galvanizing the community to build it. And so that was just, you know, the best moving over in that way and taking that role has been, was such a tremendous opportunity um, that has allowed me to do all of all of the incredible work that that really I've been able to do since then. And what what did they call the position? Uh, tell people what what is your position and what's the class that you yeah. taught that you got to, you got to get that syllabus out that you had developed Absolutely. and turned into. Tell us about that class. Yeah, so at that I was hired to be the director of professionalism, and so they created this office of professionalism. I'm now the assistant dean of professionalism and and an adjunct professor, and so. At Fordham, in addition, so in my assistant dean of professionalism role, I oversee all of our co-curricular offerings that we have this robust mandatory curriculum for 1Ls now on professional identity formation. There's a lot of wellness components baked into that. And then in my adjunct professor role, I teach two different courses. So one is a course on peer mentoring and leadership, and the other one is the positive layering course. Oh, my gosh. And Teaching that class, developing and teaching that class has hands down been the most amazing thing I've done professionally to date, um, with the exception of now I experience the same rush when when I'm doing doing the coaching work. And it was a class that led me to it, and I'll, I'll tell sure, you more about sure. that. But the class, basically what it does is it walks students through the fundamental insights and strategies of positive psychology presented in the context of the legal profession the and work the that you do as a lawyer stresses right. challenges all of the things that make well-being that much harder right. in in the legal profession and importantly it it shows them not so the 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 material that we study it starts by showing them the link between their personal well-being and they are academic and their professional performance. Yes. So we start with yes. like, why should we care beyond just a humanitarian issue? And then right. it walks them through the, the fundamental elements of well-being. And so things like meaning and purpose, engagement, relationships, achievement in a yes. values-based way, positive emotions, and how to cultivate those things. And then another thing that I've brought into it is a lot of work that it's not – I. I lump it together with positive psychology because I consider it, you know, found foundational elements sure, for human sure. flourishing, but it's not just straight positive psychology. It's a lot of stuff from coaching right. and from CBT. And so this is one of my favorite things to teach is unpacking perfectionism and reining that in and cultivating self-compassion as a yes. mind, in, as a, yes. as a mindset and looking at so many of the limiting beliefs and tendencies that hold high achieving professionals and lawyers yes, in particular yes. back not only from being happy but actually being as successful and as effective yes. as they possibly could be and so teaching this class is just oh gosh it's been 
it's it's been so wonderful. And the, the best part is seeing the transformation that the students have yes. over the course of the semester. And because they come in now, the the classes garnered a, a reputation. And so it, yeah. it, 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 it caps out super, super quickly and students really want to take it, but still they come in skeptical on the first day. Sure. And I sure. They're still like, in, what is this going to be? Right. So what is this going to be? Do you have to believe in it for, in order for it to, in order for it to work? Like this is a little woo woo, especially in yeah. certain, certain classes more, more than others. And sure. then just seeing how it impacts them over the course of the semester. And I, all of my, um, virtually all of the, the evaluations say the same thing. They say, this is not like anything I've ever taken in law school. Right. And this is more important than anything I've ever taken in law school. This class should be mandatory for every single student. Right. Because you're, you're still dealing with high achievers, people. I mean, if you've gotten to law school at Fordham, you have knocked it out of the park. You've succeeded at a, at a level. So you get a lot of people who you can what I love is you can recognize your young self in them oh my gosh, and you yeah. have this passion to want to like, Hey, let me save you some of the challenges. Let me save you uh, or give you some tools to deal with some of the challenges that I know you're going to run into. That's part of, uh, I think what, what, what all about everything you do that resonates with me. That's sort of my passion as well. I, my CLE business came about because it's like, there's so many things I didn't learn in law school yeah. that are really important that really make a difference in addition to the subnum knowledge and all the argument and persuasion, all that. And that's how I started doing CLE programs is like, we should tell people this. We should yeah. find a way to let them know you've got to have some emotional intelligence. You've got to have uh, a radar for what your values are, because what are you going to do when those values come into conflict with one another and you Absolutely. can't have them all? And people, um, people often say like, oh, are you telling us all that we should leave the law? And I say, no, absolutely not. Hmm. I want to tell you, teach you what I didn't know before you burn out and feel like you have no other option but to leave. Because the truth is, is that I think that if I had approached my work with a different mindset and with different tools, I could have been happy doing it. I could have been happy and I could have been healthy doing it. And part of it is when you're thinking about values work is like, oh, well, what, what job do you want? But so much of it is just like, how do you treat yourself and how yes. do you show up in the world um, yes. regardless of where you are or what you're doing? And so really it's fortifying them to be able to do this work that they yes. came here to do. And say, so say a bit about, we have some listeners who are going to hear positive psychology and know what that is. We may have some who are like, positive psychology, is that like, it's like Dr. Norman Vincent Peale and like, like be optimistic about everything is that I'm just positive and like you get you know, crapped on and something terrible happens like, but it's okay. It's not that, right? It's more robust no. than that. Can you kind of it's distinguish that for folks? Definitely, definitely more robust than that. And so the, the term that I get the most is talk, is it toxic positivity? And absolutely <laughs> right. not. So I, so I often tell my students, so first, first of all, just explain what positive psychology yeah. is. Basically, it was created in the 90s by Marty Seligman, who was then the uh, president of the American Psychological Association. And up until that point, all traditional psychology had surrounded around the disease model. So yes. diagnosing and treating disorder illness. Exactly. Oriented. Disorder oriented. And what Marty Seligman said, he's like, well, we need to expand our focus beyond just treating the negative and look I start studying the factors that give rise to optimal human functioning or to flourishing. And so instead of just focusing on bringing people from negative 10 or depressed, anxious to zero, neutral, how do we get people from zero to five or even to positive 10? Um, And really importantly, cultivating positivity or, you know, promoting optimal human functioning or 
flourishing, it doesn't at all involve ignoring the negative or, or denial about or denying it. the right. negative. In fact, so many things show that for like theories like post-traumatic growth, in order to go yes. on after a trauma and actually build a more meaningful, fulfilling life, which is what they call post-traumatic growth, you have to first, you know, acknowledge and nurse the pain and, yes. you know, support is essential to that. So it's not it's not, it's, not one or the, yeah. it's not one or the other, but it's right. how do we bring more positive into our life? Because if you think of it this way, if you have something that's negative and so it's – I mean, it's negative. So it's draining draining something. Right. There's – if you add positive in addition to it without pretending, denying that the negative is there, you're still yeah. increasing the level of positivity overall. Right. And so right. if we can learn how to cultivate – positive, we can increase our well-being even without obliterating the negative. And which is good because we can't always get rid of the negative. Sure, sometimes we can and that's great. Um, we should do that. But there's ways to cultivate the positive separate and distinct from that. And so things like social connection, finding yes. ways to um, – have feelings of meaning and purpose in what we're doing, like we're doing mattering. If you're doing something that is hard and painful, yes. but you have some sense that what you're doing is rooted and supporting one of your values or that by doing it, you're somehow connecting with another yes. person in a positive way, it makes it that much more bearable, that much more right, tolerable, right. even meaningful and worthwhile. And so it is focusing on those types of things and the benefits in doing so. Right. So some people like, so for instance, I thought that, you know, what's the, what's the point of like relationships seemed frivolous if, right. uh, as did doing anything that just, you know, positive emotions that made me happy that, that I thought were funny, things like that. I was like, oh, that's a waste of time. That's gluttonous. You know, I have to put off all of these things yeah. that will give me a sense of joy and fulfillment in the moment in order to get where I want to go. And what the science shows is that, all of those things actually turbocharge our engagement and ultimately yes. our productivity and our performance. Also, something that I think is so important, going to back to what we were talking about before with the chasing gold stars, scientifically shown hedonic adaptation or the hedonic treadmill effect, which is that external achievements or changing our external surroundings, setting these external goals they do not actually make us happy for any meaningful right. amount of time because even if there's a very, very, you know, brief increase in happiness when we get what we want, it ultimately goes it back last. to baseline because we acclimate, our brains actually acclimate, and then we're on, we recalibrate, and then we want yes. to. Yes, and you've got to get a dopamine hit, you know, to exactly. put it in the science terms, you got to get a dopamine hit the same way. Sounds like you're building a lot on the work of people like Larry Krieger down totally. at uh, Florida State. And Sheldon, who did, uh, they did a landmark study on what is it that makes lawyers and law students happy, yeah. and 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 they first have to rescue. Hey, that's not a crazy goal. It's okay to actually want to have a happy life, and happy doesn't mean happy, happy, joy, joy. I don't notice that you know bad well, stuff is happening. It's more yeah. resilient. It's related, I guess, to resilience and oh, adaptability. Totally. I mean, if you look at um, there's so many studies in, in the area of positive psychology that show when they measure people over time, people that were happier at point one follow them 10 years later 
they're making more money. They're more successful in their careers than people who were less happy at that time because right. these fact, these elements of well-being actually drive success mm-hmm. rather rather than the other way around. And the people that have those, you know, breakdowns when they're just yes. totally depressed because they've spent their entire life chasing these goals, they've gotten every single one of them, and they're still not happy. It's be- often because they've been, you know making their worth and their fulfillment contingent on these extrinsic things and in ignoring all of these other foundational elements of well-being in the process. And so like a question that this is something I heard in my, when I fast forward, did my coach training program. And so it was just, you know, bringing things full circle here. It was teaching the positive lawyering course and recognizing that I was spending like 20 hours a week, um, in office hours with my students talking yes, about how to yes. apply, they could apply these things in their own lives. Couple that with the fact that when my students graduated, they were calling me and being like, A, I would not be surviving at my law firm if I didn't take your class. Right. But two, we need more support like this out in the world. Yes. So all, all of because that- Because what you're talking uh, about is not just information that you receive. Okay, now you have to kind of practice oh my gosh, some yeah. of these changes of mindset or how you deal with things when, totally. when something, you know, a challenge comes up. And maybe you get kind of an equilibrium that's working, but then you get a different set of circumstances. You have to maintain to that. it. This is why my blog is called Chronicles of a Recovering Type A Plus right. Perfectionist. Because when I don't practice these things, I lose it too. And right. That I mean, that it's almost selfish that I love teaching this so much because whenever I'm teaching it, I I practice it so much more myself because it keeps it it keeps it top of top of mind. Um, oh, but was, uh, I was mentioning the coaching. Um, so in my coach training, they 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 said something that I thought was really profound. They said, "What is your goal?" And they asked us to state whatever the goal is, the thing that we are going for. Sure. And then they said, "And how do you expect that you'll feel when you achieve that goal?" And so Ooh, you know. Okay. And then they said. The thing that you said to the first question, your answer to the first question, that's not your real goal. Your it's real goal that is that feeling. Oh, interesting. And if you ask yourself, you know, how many times in the past did you say, I'll just have that feeling when? Yes. And then how long did that feeling actually right, last right. before you move the goalpost? And so then the question becomes, so how can we create that? Fe- it's that feeling that we're all chasing. Yes. How can we create that feeling now? Because the answer is we can create that feeling now. And if we can't, and if we don't, we're never going to have that feeling in the future. Right, if we right, keep right. just saying, oh, if I get this thing, I will. And so it's looking at, you know, how how can we take ownership of how we want to feel and then how can we start cultivating that both by designing our lives, but also really working on how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to the world around us because so much of it is about mindset rather than changing external circumstances. And that's, that is building very much on what Krieger talked about. I know. And, and when I was a law professor, we tried to put that, you know, kind of instill that into the students as well. It's not just about the next brass ring, the next achievement, uh, for all of those reasons, uh, because A, you don't necessarily have control of whether you get the next one or the next job or whatever. And B, yeah, when you get there, it may not be all that you want it to be. Um, and and then maybe it is for a while, but then th- circumstances will change. And so that all those skills, I love hearing that law schools are getting more and more open to uh, yeah. focusing on that, you know, uh, and, and that the ABA's recent mandate now is saying we want 
students to have meaningful opportunity for professional identity formation. And that has to include well-being as a component and strategies, meaningful opportunities. It's not just let's tell them about it and make sure they remember it, but rather we got to lab it. We got to do it in experiential, you know, settings. Totally. And and so every class, you know, there's the teaching component and then in between the students always have positive interventions. So those are the the things that they're supposed to go home and do and then reflect on in their journal. So every single week they're doing that, they're turning in their positive intervention logs. And similarly with, with my coaching, it's not just we have a conversation, then you go. It's like, then you go and there's always there's always something to practice to yes. do and then to reflect on because positive psychology is not a discipline where you study it and you right. learn it. It's, you, you practice it. Um, and and you have to fail. Really I mean, you have to, yeah, you have to sort of fail and debrief. How did that go? Why didn't it go well? What were the obstacles? You learn about yourself as you do that. Um, yeah. I had a, conference, uh, a conversation with a, a woman I met, a lawyer, uh, and, and another lawyer and I ended up at a symposium that Wake Forest just put mm-hmm. on that was phenomenal. It was about uh, the Wake Forest Law Review had a symposium on professional identity development and the future of legal education, experiential education, all of that. And awesome. I met this woman who basically had done lots of IP, uh, no, sorry, pharmaceutical related litigation, done it for years and years. And she actually was recruited to come to a different firm that was a competitor because they knew they needed somebody like her because she was not just a brilliant litigator, but she was sort of had that kind of mother hen sort of nurturing of the younger lawyers and kind of supporting them. And yeah. they realized they're like, we don't have anybody who's doing that. We're all a bunch of barracudas and all we can yep. do is be barracudas. And we can tell this is not working for our young baby barracudas. They're yeah. like, can you come and give them some hope and some guidance? Yeah, And she said, and she told about real quick story, one of the first things that she did was a young associate comes in and is like, I got my first deposition, you know, of an expert witness. And she's like, okay, well, how are you feeling? What are you? She's like, I'm just really nervous. I'm really nervous. I'm really scared. And, and she said, well, t- walk me through, tell me what you've done. And she, you know, she had prepared and she had read everything and this expert had been deposed a lot. And, and so the, the senior lawyer said, sounds like you're ready, ready to go. What, what are you afraid of? And she mm-hmm. said, I'm just afraid I'm going to make a mistake. I'm going to screw it up. Yeah. She said, well, you are, you are, I mean, that's okay though. You know, that happens like, but you can't lose the case. Like you're not gonna, you know, you can't make a mistake in this setting that's going to, you know, uh, wreck everything. But that's where her brain had gone. Like, oh my yeah. gosh, so much pressure. And well, just somebody to be that messenger to say, Hey, look there, you know, step back perspective because you don't, you can't do it when you're in it. Well, I think, I mean, you, you just touched on two really important things that are all both missing from legal education. So one is growth mindset. So no yes. one teaches growth mindset, which I think is one of the <laughs> most important professional identity formation skills for anyone, not, yes. Just, yes. not just for lawyers. And like, law, law students are particularly tend towards fixed mindset um, and they avoid feedback and law school is terrible with feedback. There's very few opportunities for feedback. And yes. so for that reason, lots of law students graduate having received very little feedback, not wanting feedback, looking at feed- feedback as something to be avoided from or to hide right, from if right. they get it, as opposed to unpacking it as a gift, yes. basically a roadmap to helping you identify how you can get um, improved. So that, that's yes. one real important thing. And I, t- I teach that in both of my classes and in our professional identity formation co-curriculum. The other thing that you're getting at though about the baby barracudas not being inspired and motivated by the the senior barracudas is something that is so important for all law firms and all organizations to learn. And I teach this as a leadership skill because one of the key 
things in um, theories in positive psychology, and Larry Krieger has written a lot about this, is self-determination theory, which is yes. what are the key pillars, not just of well-being, but of engagement, of what motivates yes. and people to do their best work. And it's not like a draconian, Machiavellian type, you know, beat you into submission, scare you into doing your work. Right. Best work. Actually, people are most engaged. They do their best work when they have a sense of autonomy, mastery, relatedness. Yes. And that relatedness, like how do we give people a sense of belonging and connection, that, that sense yes. of autonomy, how do we make them feel like they matter and that their work matters? And how can we give them a sense of mastery and competence? How can we imbue them with these positive things? Yes. And that will motivate them to do their best work, not scaring them out of their wits. That, you know, you'll get them to comply, but they'll be so anxious and so nervous yes. that they can't possibly show up at their best selves. And they'll be so risk averse that while they might be able to execute on the basic task that they've learned yes. over and over again, they'll never actually add value in any right. way and therefore can never actually be leaders or you know innovate or ideate yes. or anything like that. And so it's so interesting as we you know think about the future of legal education and innovation and future of legal, like if we want to be forward looking, we're going to have to give up some of these perfectionist fixed mindset yes. tendencies that are keeping us in these locked little boxes of just kind of repeating the same thing over yes. and over and over again. And we're also going to have to get rid of the idea of, well, I suffered through X, Y, Z, so everybody oh, yeah. should have to. Like yep. that's just nonsensical mindset. Um, I tell these stories and I won't go into the details of it, but in, in a lot of our workshops, I worked for two law firms, one right after the other, and one was more of a criticism, negative. How, notice how we're doing well and you're not. What's your problem was sort of the mindset. Mm -hmm. And I literally went from working for from in that environment to people who are the exact same experience level, very different from me in terms of what I, I thought I was more personally values aligned with the first people. And, and the other people, I'm like, oh, I'm not really personal values aligned with them. What's that going to be like? But they ended up being people who were positive, who were encouraging, like, you did this great. This is really good. You know, there might be a few things I would tweak. Yeah. To you know, make it better for the client, you know, just because of this or that. But really, I'm so glad you're here. And I literally was kind of shrinking and dying on the vine at one place and didn't even know it. In fact, when they they said, you know, we don't think this is working out, you need to work somewhere else. I, my first stop was to like a local grad school to like maybe yeah. I'm just out of here. Yeah. Uh, versus I worked under these two similar people in terms of age and experience, but their mindset was so different, was so positive, was so welcoming. And I kind of came back to life. It's the difference yeah. between, you know, white knuckling it and just getting through and just, you know, fighting like everybody versus the idea of, of, of really flourishing. I love Absolutely. That there's a class that you get to emphasize that. And what I love from that example is so that's a great external example about how, you know, you didn't even realize maybe you thought you were broken when you weren't performing optimally. I did. Under the I first did. But then when you worked with people who nurtured you in that way and you saw what you were capable of, the same is also true, by the way, of how we treat ourselves. And yes. so, so many lawyers and law students think that they're successful because they are ruthlessly self-critical and hard on themselves. Yeah. And, they th and they're ruthless perfectionists. And they think that they've gotten to this place because of that. And they're like, yep, I've given up some health. I've given yes. up some happiness, but it's, but it's gotten me here. And what I want to just kind of hit them over the heads with, because I know this from my own personal experience, is like, no, you've gotten here, notwithstanding beating yourself up. Right, actually, right. It's I mean, a miracle you that you got this far. Kindly, you treat yourself kindly. It's not going to make you less 
you know, committed to excellence, it's not going to make you n less driven or less motivated. Actually, it's just going to help you and energize you to do all of that more. Your standards will be just as high, but if you don't beat yourself up whenever you have a setback, yes. you'll be able to get back up there that much quicker and objectively look to see, you know, what actually happened? What went wrong? How can I fix it? Rather yes. than just, you know, punishing yourself saying you're so terrible you're so terrible you're worthless like what how, what what value comes from that well it's the same kind of thing you see in the mindset of you know litigators who feel like they have to be tough and ruthless and harsh and strong and you know what there's some great litigators who are kind who are professional who are like they are going to eviscerate you with their arguments they're they're no less prepared in fact they're they're wonderfully prepared but they don't have to be a jerk in the middle of it and they actually they actually see things better and they're not caught up in this battle royale, you know, of I have to you know, prove who I am and that I'm strong or I'm tough or, I'm, or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to make that mindset shift. If you're sort of just if everybody you see is doing that and you're used to doing that, the, the inner critic. And then, you know, we basically if we don't criticize our insides, we criticize other people. Those are great ways to escape, you know, shame and feelings of inadequacy, really. Yeah. Uh, and so I love, I just love that your class exists. I love, are there any other deans of professionalism? Are there, is that a thing at many law schools? I, I haven't seen that title very often. I have not seen that exact title either. What I will say is there's, a, there's definitely um, other, there's a few, definitely a few other directors of professional sure. identity formation things, a couple like that. We've seen more over the past few years. I will say yeah. that when when Fordham created this office, I think maybe there was one other school. Penn yeah. had an, a center on professionalism early yes. on. I think that was the only one out there when Fordham did it. Fordham was really, really wow. cutting edge ahead of the curve here. And so now with the new ABA standard, I think, I hope we're going to start seeing more of these positions, just like at law firms, we've started to see some more directors of wellness and things like yes. that popping up. Um, I'm hoping that this is a tide that is going to keep going in this in this direction. Um, but I'm so, I'm so grateful to have, you know, landed at Fordham, this place that yeah. was doing it even before even before the ABA standards or, or anyone yes. was saying that. that, that was was Elena Tabul there as well? Am I remembering that name right? I know. I've read Alina, her paper. Yeah, yeah. Alina co-taught with me the first, the first semester of positive lawyering. So I had connected with Alina, we actually met at a, I was giving a presentation on finding your purpose at the New York City Bar okay. Association. And she was going through her master's in psych at Columbia at the time. I was at Columbia at the time, but then by the time that Alina and I, she LinkedIn messaged me as, you know, yeah. we, we, you and I connected and we ended up meeting for the first time once I was already at Fordham. And okay. so we put our heads together. She was doing her coach training that, that, that yes, time. Yes, yes. Um, I was not yet doing my coach training. I was actually hearing about her experience. Okay. really gave me the coaching bug too. And so we co-taught positive lawyering that first okay. semester together. And then she has subsequently moved to the UK, is doing amazing coaching work there. And then oh, I've kind okay. of taken on expanded peer mentoring to make it a, at the time we just did it as a one credit course. Okay. And so now it's a two to three credit course, really built it out um, since then. And yeah, well, I saw her. Um, with it. I saw the paper that she wrote that was kind of a coaching model, sort of yep. a coaching model. 
uh, for the profession that she did when she was getting her her positive psychology. I think she may have done it at Columbia too. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Um, she she was one of the one of the leading coaches in the lawyer people with both the lawyer and the coach training early on in yes. this in this area. Well, Jordana, you are an inspiration both because you are in the trenches in academia trying to again effectuate what the ABA is saying we need, what so many voices have been saying that we need. And we're starting to see again that the, with the next gen bar changing to be more skills focused, judgment focused, less memorization. Yay for that. Yep. Law school experience is, is actually, you know, skills at my law school, which I love my law school. I had a great educational experience, but there were, I didn't get, I had maybe one or two classes that had, I had trial ad, but other than that, skills, training, negotiation, stuff like that wasn't there and well being wasn't discussed at all. It's becoming more of a prevalent thing. It's becoming, more and more commonplace, but thank you for being a thought leader, a pioneer in that, even uh, and, and, and just sharing out of your own journey. I hope other people hear it and and hear something they can relate to and that, that you can you know get off the hamster wheel and out of the pressure cooker yeah. and experience some joy, even still you know practicing law in whatever format. Um, where can people find you if they are interested in connecting with your uh, uh, coaching uh, opportunities? You mentioned the blog, which is uh, recovering confessions of recovering chronicles of chronicles. recovering type a plus perfectionist. So it is, it's a mouthful, <laughs> but if you want to find me, first of all, I'm on LinkedIn, Jordana Confino, you can find me there. And then my website is jordanaconfino.com. And if you want to subscribe to the blog, um, it's jordanaconfino.com slash newsletter sign up, but I'll, I'll give you the link for the show notes, Chris. And I will also awesome. give you, um, I mentioned the values discovery exercise that I did with my therapist that kind of set me on this winding path. I've subsequently developed it out into something much more robust and comprehensive oh, that I use both okay. with my students and my coaching clients. So I'll give you the link for that as well. So it's kind of, is it kind of your own thing? It's not like the VIA or the Gallup. Oh, it's like yeah, your no, own no, thing. This, is, oh, this wow. is my own thing. Um, and so you can pop that Love in the show notes too, if anyone wants to do that for themselves and, Thank you so much for having me today. It's been a real, a real pleasure chatting with you. Well, thank you for coming. And this is, uh, you can tell I geek out on this a little bit, partly because again, it's the same sort of thing. The things you wish you had known earlier, you wish you could have discovered. Uh, there's so much more we could talk about. We may have to have you back again sometime. Anytime, uh, my pleasure. A couple different places. I'd love to go with it, but I want to be. Is it going to be about time. my dating after law school? I think that's a, a whole podcast. I think that's a podcast. If Zach's okay with it, now Zach's oh, got to, you know, is it okay to dive into all that? Zach's basically a celebrity for my students now, so there you he's, go. Well, see, he's in gets, all my stories. Well, Zach gets to show up at the end and say, "I was like one in a thousand. You know, oh. how cool is that? He's so, one in a million. I'll keep there. Him. You go." Uh, well, congrats to you. Thank you so much. I am going to uh, close this out here. And uh, listener, thank you so much for being with us as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thriving Lawyers podcast. We love hearing from our loyal listeners. So please feel free to email us any questions, comments, suggested topics, or guest recommendations at the following address, feedback at thrivinglawyerspodcast.com. The Thriving Lawyers podcast is brought to you by Real-Time Creative Learning Experiences a national provider of continuing legal education and professional development programs that leave participants engaged, encouraged, and equipped to pursue meaningful and sustainable change in their practices, their lives, and the organizations they work in. And by Osborne Conflict Resolution, your experienced guides through the uncharted terrain of business and family law disputes based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Thriving Lawyers Podcast.